Well, good morning. You don't have to be tuned into the news very long to realize that the tension in our country right now is at an all-time high. And this tension is so evident that it is dividing our nation and pitting people against one another based on how you view many of these controversial topics. Uh, For instance, the upcoming presidential election that has never looked less presidential. And how some of the candidates will spew out words that we would never allow our children to say, yet we have grown adults cheering them because, well, at least they're saying it like it is. Or what about the dividing line that we are seeing growing more in our culture over racism? And you have people on the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And you have people wanting to, to, to raise the Confederate flag. You have the police violence and tension that's going on in places like Cleveland and Cincinnati, Chicago, Baltimore, Ferguson. And the riots have taken place there. Or the battles of immigration and those seeking asylum from their war-torn countries and seeking a place where they can save their families, but they don't have a home to go to. And you have others who are trying to, to close the borders to keep them away, but they don't want them here because of fear. And some might argue that these conversations are nothing new, and I would agree somewhat about that. But how high the tension has become is what's really alarming and what I find to be really chilling during this time. Here's what I have seen. That the public square in America is in decay. That over, the, the, this, over history in urban planning, they have always created these public squares where people could come and debate on things such as philosophy and religion and uh, all of these other areas where they could come face to face. And even if you disagree, even if you choose not to believe the way that they believe, that they would have these conversations in these public squares face to face and civility was a virtue that allowed them to do that. But today, the public square has shifted largely from face-to-face to hiding behind computer screens and anonymous screen names where we can say whatever we want to say, lob whatever grenade we want to lob, with no consequence, seemingly, of our words. And what alarms me the most isn't that this is just happening in the political realm or in the media, but that this is taking place, it is seeping in to the church, and it is dividing the church, sending us to opposing corners based on whatever view of these issues you stand on. And Christians aren't just becoming more divided because of our cultural climate, but the divide is growing even more between those who hold to a secular worldview and for those who pledge allegiance to the kingdom that Christ is trying to bring here. So how do we as followers of Jesus navigate and engage in the culture where the tension is at an all-time high? How do we engage with people as people who represent Jesus. Well, we just wrapped up this series called Jesus Is. 
And from what we have heard from many of you is that it hit a mark that, that needed to be hit. But we've also prayerfully and strategically planned this series based on after Jesus is, because here is what we see, is when you come to grips with who Jesus is, when you cross the bridge, if you were here last week, and you begin to live on this side of the bridge with the new life and Jesus living the power inside of you, he calls us to be his ambassadors in the culture which he has put us in. You might say it simply this way, that because Jesus is, love does. And I see Christians responding to the culture in basically three ways. One is I see Christians run from culture. Right? And they see the Bible as this sort of culture repellent that they spray on themselves and they want to keep the culture at a distance. And so that they have their Christian bubble, their holy huddle, and they've got their, they, they've got their Christian music, they've got their Christian movies, they put their kids in Christian schools, and they give them Christian t-shirts, and they go to churches with other Christians who believe like them so they can hide out from the world and complain about how bad it is out there. And they know that Jesus calls them to share their faith, to help them find their way back to God, but they want to do it with keeping the culture at arm's length. So they might put a bumper sticker on their car. Or maybe one of those little fish. Or maybe they would put a a little gospel track on a toilet in a public bathroom. I shared my faith. There it is. Or the other way I see Christians who engage with culture is that they reject it. They don't run from it. They just reject it. And they come at it with this sense of supremacy. Because we have the truth and they don't, then, sorry about your luck. They kind of raise their their nose to the culture because we have the truth. They become very self-righteous, very judgmental over the culture, so they reject it. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you will so clearly see him living another way, a third way that he calls us to follow him in. Matthew chapter 5 says that he said, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And salt in the ancient world was a very precious commodity. They would use it to preserve their food. Think about it. They didn't have refrigeration like we do. If we want to take some some raw meat and keep it for a while, we can throw it in the freezer, bring it out, thaw it out, throw it on the grill months later. But there, they would take salt, and they would take their uncooked meat, and they would just bury it in the salt. The salt would permeate it. It would consume all over it so that it would slow the decaying process and would preserve the meat. So what Jesus isn't saying when he calls us the salt of the earth is he's not saying that we are to be like these little salt shaker Christians that keep the culture at a distance and kind of sprinkle a little bit of salt on it to make it taste a little bit better. 
And that's what I see salt shaker Christians to be. Is that here's, our, here's my little bumper sticker, but don't get near me. Just sprinkle a little bit of salt. That's what Jesus is not saying. And here's what also Jesus is not saying. We had some people over for dinner uh, from our church here, and we had some chili. And they came with them. They brought a spice that I had never heard of before, and it's called Slap Ya Mama. And apparently, if you put some Slap Ya Mama in your chili or whatever food you're working with, it's going to raise it up a level, okay? It's going to bring some spice. It's going to bring some kick to it. And when I look at the back of, of, of Slap Ya Mama, the number one ingredient is salt. And I think, I really do think, that some Christians hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth. And they really think that we are the slap your mama. And we go to culture and we say, here, let me pour in some of my judgment on you. Let me add a dash of condemnation. And we leave people with a sense of indigestion and a really bad taste of Jesus in their mouth. But what Jesus really calls us to engage with culture is that salt of the earth is preservation. He's calling his followers to inundate this world, to engage in it, to engulf the culture so that God might save some through us. He doesn't call us to run from it. He doesn't call us to reject it. And I see Christianity today so full of salt shaker Christians and slap your mama Christians when Jesus calls us to be inundated the culture with the love of Christ. And so what does this look like? Today I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or whatever, to go to Acts chapter 17. And today we're going to go verse by verse through this text as we're going to watch the Apostle Paul as he goes into the city of Athens and the way that he engages with this culture. And I think we will see the way that Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. And we're going to draw some stuff out of this scripture. It's a great, great text. So verse 16, it starts there. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Who's them? He's waiting for his traveling companions. Guys by the name of Silas and Timothy, who right now are in the city of Berea. They're going to meet up with, with Paul later in Athens. But right now, he's there by himself. And he, as he goes into Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I'm guessing that all of you have seen images before of, of ancient Athens, right? And you have the Parthenon and the Acropolis. Maybe you've even traveled there and have seen the ruins and the, the ancient city with your own eyes. But Athens and Greece was a polytheistic culture. They had many gods and goddesses for everything. And... Most scholars put the number of gods and goddesses over the, the number of 2,000 in Paul's day, and they had over 30,000 temples, statues, idols, and altars. 
So Paul is walking through the city of Athens, seeing all of this. And the Bible says that his spirit is provoked, that his heart breaks for the city. It breaks for these people. His spirit is provoked. The Greek word there is proxuno. If you're in the medical profession, you know that word, that, the proxism which is shakes or seizures or convulsions. Paul is literally walking through Athens, seeing all these idols, and after each one he sees, he just kind of cringes. And in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And this was Paul's pretty typical routine. When he would go into a city, He would first go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews and teach them. But then he would go out into the marketplace, the public spaces, in which he would then preach to the non-Jews or the Greeks. So he goes into the agora, the marketplace. We use that word agora for agoraphobics, right? Those people who are fearful of being in public places. He is now in the public square of Athens. It's a place not only where it's commerce going on, but it's also the higher education place in Athens. It's also the courtroom. It's the place where debates would take place. And in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is getting a little bit of pushback here, isn't he? From some in, who, who are hearing him. And they call him a babbler. But that's actually not the best translation for this Greek word. It's actually what they're calling him is a seed picker. A seed picker. Why? Because remember, this is a marketplace. Every day, farmers would come in with their food carts. And they would have their produce to sell. You've been to a farmer's market. Something very similar to that. So people would come in, get what they wanted, buy it, and leave. And at the end of the day, the carts are gone. The farmers have gone back home. And what's left behind? The leftovers. The stuff that has fallen on the ground. And so what comes in? Crows, the scavenger birds all swoop in and they start to peck peck, 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 at all the stuff that's left on the ground. They're not picky at what they get. They'll take whatever. And so these philosophers look at Paul and call him a seed picker. It's basically saying he'll take this little nugget of something he heard from someone else and then just turn around and spout it off without even fully grasping what he's talking about. You might see people like this on Facebook. They see something on their newsfeed. And they get all bothered, all angry about it. And what do they do? They just share it. They comment about it. They, they, they blog about it. Without going to Snopes.com or some other fact-checking site to even realize it's not true. And you're just sharing it now with everyone you know more untruths. So it's, they're seed pickers. And Paul's called that. He gets some initial pushback. But ears are open. Verse 19 says, They took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We want to know more. 
what these things mean. Paul is taken to the leading council in Athens. This is a group of 30 men who have been elected democratically by the people. These are like the, the top thinkers. And they, they meet in this area that's been dedicated to the, the god of war, Ares. They also call it Mars Hill. And he is about to teach them. And you can actually, when you travel to Athens today, you can actually go to this spot and see the place where Paul stood to teach in the Areopagus. That's pretty cool. I think the church needs to send me to go see that. I'll do a video or something like that. It's pretty cool. But here is the first thing that we see that Paul does in the public square and how we can grace the public square with integrity. Because at this point, has Paul convinced anyone with his words? Not that we know of, but he has earned the right to speak. And nothing closes doors faster. Nothing closes ears faster than when we lack integrity, when we are hypocritical, when we say we believe one thing, but we live in a different way, when we are judgmental of others, when we condemn others, when we attack them based on their beliefs, Nothing shuts the doors of listeners quicker. And we lose the opportunity to to share with them the good news of Jesus that they desperately need to hear. Paul wrote in another letter to Christians, he says, Would you live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity? Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. And I have seen and heard people who follow Jesus say some of the most hateful and evil things about people of other races, other people who vote differently than they do, other religions, even our president or other government officials, even though the Bible tells us that we are to pray for our leaders and our leaders in authority positions, it says that is good and pleases God the Savior. Paul writes, he says, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from who? Comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. And I want to challenge you today, and I want to challenge myself. The next time we, put, we, we, we want to put the president or the president-to-be on blast, or the next time you go on the attack with someone who is of another race or of another religion or of another whatever, another political party, that would you let your knees lead you in prayer for them instead of letting your fingers lead as you post something and send it out in the public space. Because after all, that person is created by God in his image, who he calls you to love. And Paul walks into the public square of Athens, and because of his integrity, he earns the right to be heard, and he is invited now to speak before these elite leaders and thinkers. And so verse 22 says, So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Listen, he's saying, I've seen all your statues. I've seen all your temples. You have gods and goddesses for everything. I've even found this one altar that says to the unknown God. And here's why, he's, here's what, why they had this. Um, if you've ever read Greek mythology before, you know their stories all kind of go the same way. That they have these gods and goddesses who live up on Mount Olympus. And a time they'll get angry at us who are living down here on earth. And they'll come down and maybe even disguise themselves as humans. And they'll play tricks or they'll get revenge on these humans. And they were afraid that maybe they forgot some of these gods and goddesses who were up there and didn't build them a temple, didn't build them a statue. So if if one of these came down all angry and frustrated and ready to seek revenge, they could go, oh no, we didn't forget about you. Let me show you. Here's your altar. It just says to an unknown God. We forgot what your name was, but here's your altar. And Paul says, the God that you don't know, I know him. I know him and I want to tell you about him. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And you can just kind of picture him kind of sweeping his his arms around and letting them kind of take in the scenery of all these temples and statues. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In my travels around the world, I've seen places like Taiwan where they have, they have temples everywhere. They have temples like Maple Avenue has signs and billboards. I mean, they're just everywhere. And you have these temples, and outside of them are these food carts where you can purchase all kinds of foods to take them into the temples and pray and offer these food sacrifices or food offerings to their gods so they would hear their prayers. You can buy tofu. You can buy fruits. You can buy Oreo cookies. All right? And you can take them into these temples and offer them. Here's the thing, though. They never get eaten. I mean, it's kind of a Christmas Eve, plate of cookies, milk out for Santa kind of a thing. They never get eaten. And Paul says, this God that I'm telling you about, this unknown God to you, but who I know, he doesn't need this stuff from you. Matter of fact, in verse 25, It says, he himself gives to all mankind zoe, life, and breath, and everything. He gives life, zoe. He uses this word zoe, which is in the Greek. And the philosophers of the Oropagus, when he uses this word, they would have instantly picked up on this. Because the God, the father of all the gods of, of, of of Greece was a guy by the name of Zeus, right? And matter of fact, where they are standing, they are about a stone throw away from a temple dedicated to Zeus. And you cannot say the name of Zeus in the Greek language without Zoe. And Paul is saying the God that you don't know, who I know, is bigger and greater than you could possibly imagine. He is the giver of Zoe, of life itself. That your little God Zeus, you can't even think him up without this God that I know. Verse 26 
is he made from one man. This God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And Paul reminds us right here how racism and judging people by the color of their skin is simply moronic. He says, we come from the same man that God created us, that we all have the same DNA, and God created us to come through the single man. If you trace us all back, we go back to Adam. That a surgeon would never operate on someone differently because of their color of skin, because when he knows when he cuts them open, you find the same organs in the same place, and how God looks at us, not on the outside, but at the heart. He says he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He says God is not only the creator of life, but he is also, he is also determines human governance. That he is sovereign at all times. That not, there's no ruler who's ever risen or fallen without God knowing about it or allowing it to happen. That the Egyptian empire, who once was the, the dominant empire in our, in our world, it had an expiration date and God knew what it was. And the same thing with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Grecians and the Romans. And fast forward to 2016 and God is still on the throne and no ruler rises or follows, no kingdom rises or falls without God's knowing and allowance of it to happen. And in verse 27, he says that is why he, we should actually, that we should feel, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Here's another thing we can take from Paul as he goes into the public square is that we should grace the public square of our day with credibility. I mean, it's plain to see from this text that Paul knows what he's doing. He is not afraid to match wits with anybody. He knows how these Greeks think. He knows how they reason. And he is stepping up to these guys. Despite what you may or may not have heard, that making a decision to follow Christ doesn't mean that you have to check your brain in at the door. I mean, since the Enlightenment, these scholars have, have said that followers of Jesus are these anti-intellectuals, even though some of the greatest thinkers of the Western world, guys like Augustine and, and Pascal and, and Newton and many, many others, were passionate followers of Jesus. They say that we would rather die than think. But we have nothing to fear from intellectual pursuits because God is the creator of our minds. First Peter says that we are to be ready to have an answer for why we believe what we believe. And when we do, when we have answers, when we, when we can speak with credibility and with intellect over, over issues, it brings the credibility of Christ into the public square. And that's what we see as Paul. In the next verse, Paul uses his understanding, I love this, of the Greek culture. He actually brings poets that they would know, actual Greek poets, into his 
argument. He says, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And this is another reason why we can't just run from culture or or reject culture. It's why it's so important that we, if we're going to reach our culture for Jesus, we need to know what they're watching. We need to know what they're listening to, what they're reading. We need to know how they think, how they what they're passionate about, and make those bridges so that we can connect them to Jesus. I had a professor in Bible college who used to say that we need to be as astute at studying culture as we are about studying the Word of God. And then Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all his people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who is who? Jesus. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And you can't preach the good news of Jesus without a call to repent. I mean, you can be as eloquent as you want to be. You can be as intellectual at, at telling the story of Jesus and what he has done for you. But when you, if you don't give a, an opportunity to repent and to follow Jesus, and you're just saying words, Jesus always wants us to come as we are, but he never allows us to stay that way. And repentance doesn't mean that you have to have this fall on the ground, weeping, emotional experience. Actually, repentance is a much more tangible and bold decision than that. It's a change of allegiance. It's a, it's, a, it's a change of mind led by the Holy Spirit that you are heading in this direction, and then you turn 180 degrees, and you decide, you pledge your allegiance to Jesus, and you follow his leadership. And so Paul is bringing his argument to a close with these, in the, these philosophers. He's done exactly what God has called him to do. God gave him an audience, and he stepped up to the mic, and now he's about to drop the mic and let God take over. Because it's our job and Paul's job to plant the seed, to water the seed, but it's God's job to make the growth happen. And so we see in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And we should be prepared that if when the, in the public square as followers of Christ that sometimes we will be mocked as well. But others said, we want to hear about this again. We want to hear more. In verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. Who? Who's this guy? He's one of the thirty. He's one of those 30 elite philosophers, these uh, these elected officials who heard what Paul said and said, I want to follow this Jesus who you're talking about. And so did a gal by the name of Damaris. There's one more thing we can learn from Paul real quickly here, and that is this. When we grace the public square, we need to grace it with civility. And the way that we approach someone with the good news of Jesus is just as important as the words we use. Paul, following Jesus' lead, throughout Scripture, he approaches people with grace 
and civility. He understood something that took me a long, long time to figure out, and that is you can't expect people who don't follow Jesus to act like people who do. And that seems so, like, obvious, doesn't it? But I used to get so angry when I would watch TV and I'd see guys like Bill Maher or, or, or Richard Dawkins who people in our culture would say, oh, they're the intellectuals. They would mock God and mock Christians and what they're about. I get so upset when I see atheists or people who believe differently than we do. Uh, and I just get so mad. Why aren't they following like Jesus? Why would they? Because they don't know him. And when you look at Jesus' life, he never gets impatient he never loses his cool when he's, uh, when he's hanging out with people who, who are far from God. But he often loses his temper. He often gets upset by the people who say they're following God, who say they know what God says, but are creating barriers between Jesus and those people who are far from him. And let's be honest, there's a lot of people today who claim to know Jesus, who are doing more shame for Jesus in the public square. You got street preachers with the megaphones telling people they're all going to hell. You got the Westboro Baptist Church who are spewing out all kinds of hate on anybody who's different from them. You have people on social media, those seed pickers who throw out things all the time and discrediting and bringing lower level of credibility to the Christian faith. But that's not what we see from Paul. Not at all. And it started in this text. It goes back to the fact that his heart was broken for the people of Athens, for this city. And he represents Jesus with integrity and credibility and civility. And civility, guys, is not to be confused with just being nice. All right? It's not to be confused with knowing which fork to use at a nice restaurant. Civility is so much more robust. It's so much more tough than that. Because when we are mocked, when people don't agree with what we're saying, what's easier to do? To be civil or to strike back and lash out and be defensive? Being civil in these, in these public squares, whether online or in face-to-face, is tough. It requires the humility and patience the power that Jesus gives us in the, inside when we follow him through the Holy Spirit. And it's becoming rarer and rarer in our culture where the tension is out of control. The mission of Jesus is clear. That we are to become the salt of the earth to preserve it by being people who will be bold enough to grace the public square, whether online or face-to-face or wherever you go, with the authentic and unedited love of Jesus. And here's how we're going to close out today. I think what I, we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to lead you all in a, in a time of prayer. And I want you to bow your heads right where you are, and I'm going to lead you into a few different topics that I just want you to talk to God about privately where you're at. And, and if you're not really used to talking to God, I mean, you can just talk to him like you're talking to your friend. But I'm going to give you a few things here I want you to talk to him about. Father, we, we, we enter this time. We thank you that we can come into your presence whenever, wherever we are. And you hear us. You love to hear your children. And God, right now, we, the first thing that we want to bring to you, we want to ask you, is that you would break our hearts for the thing that breaks yours. 
that for the lost in our community, in our world, the one more person who needs to know you, that you would break our heart for them like Paul for the people of Athens that we've studied about today. Would you talk to him about that? Next, would you pray for our governing authorities? Would you pray for our president, for our state leadership, local leadership? And even if they don't know Jesus, would you ask God to give them his wisdom and that he would pursue after them and that they would come to know him? pray for the race relations in our country. Pray for the race relations in your own heart. And maybe that means you need to confess some things to God, to come clean with Him about some racism in your own life. And you need to seek His forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. That we would be peacemakers in our culture. Pray for the refugees and other parts of the world that have no home, have no country, who are trying to save their families' lives. And the Bible says that refugee is close to the heart of God. And may they find followers of Christ with that same heart. Lastly, I pray, ask that you would pray for that you would be the salt of the earth. You would permeate the culture that God has put you in. He has allotted your time on this earth to be your workplace, your neighborhood, your community, wherever you go. That's your public square, online, in face-to-face. You would bring the salt of the earth, Jesus wherever you go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like I said earlier, you can't share the good news of Jesus without offering a time of repentance. And maybe right now, just even that prayer time is stirring stuff in you that you need to make a decision about with Jesus. Maybe you need to step over that, that, that line and make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe it's just even, I want to be a part of this church and being salt in this community for Jesus. You can make that decision today. We're going to sing and wrap up our, our, our time today with this song of decision. If you're ready to make a decision for Jesus today, you can meet me up here in front. Let's do that. Let's stand where you are.